Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Red. I'm Igberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. Welcome aboard. Paul Fleming Sr. is in the house. We have Melanie Keelan from Barcelona, Spain is in the house. Robert Davenport is in the house. And as well, we have Yvette Avery Herod, our beautiful union activist, is in the house. AVQ brother Rudnan is in the house. Missing from the house is our one and only Bridge MCP. Bridge, where are you? Anyhow, welcome aboard, folks, and those that are the additional folks that are listening. To, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. We're going to have a great show for you today. Um, it's a special day. I, I, I had to think about which one to do I do first. Peter Bahlawanian is a a filmmaker, and he is documenting about. I don't know. You guys have heard me talk about uh, Azerbaijan and the uh, Nagorno Karabakh. The problem that there there is in that Ar- Armenian region, etc., that gets little coverage, but uh, it's it's one of the areas in the country in, in in the world that there's a lot of conflict, irrespective of what we hear about um, uh, Russia in U- Ukraine, etc., etc., etc. And um, you know, they contacted and said, you know, we'd like to give some exposure to what's going on in Armenia. Uh, actually, it's in Azak. And I said, of course, that is what we do. The goal that we have is for folks not to be tied simply to one one narrative. So in that light, we are bringing Peter Balawanian. I have some other videos that I want to show as well, but let's go ahead and start this right away since it's a, a you know fairly long one, but it's a very interested, interesting historical. Uh, documentary. So let's go ahead and do this and then we'll take it on the other side as soon as I rig this appropriately. And I think I'm about to get started. There we go now. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. My name is Igberto Willis. Today we are honored to speak with Peter Balawanian. He is the director, uh, I mean, the producer of The Desire to Live, a film about the tribulations of the Armenian people. Uh, Senor Peter, thank you so kindly for being on Politics and Right today. How are you doing today? Thank you, Igberto. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm doing uh, as great as can be. Well, you know, um, this has always been a subject that intrigued me from the times of watching what occurred in Nagorno-Karabakh and all these other places uh, in, in the Ar- Armenian region. What I'd like to ask you to first do before we get into your film specifically is for you to give me the history uh, of the period that we're covering here, the, what you're doing with your film, and why did you feel the necessity to create this film documentary? Well, I felt like right after the 2020 war that happened with Azerbaijan and Armenia over that, uh, I refer to it as Artsakh, but Nagorno-Karabakh, I felt like the story had to be told. And uh, since that treaty was done, we started filming from that point on and haven't stopped filming yet, telling the stories of the people that live on those lands. So tell us the story. Give us a genesis of Armenia and and the the, the surrounding period. Sure. I mean, it really started a little bit more back in the 1900s, early 1900s, when uh, Stalin was in power and the Soviet Union uh, and Ottomans were at war with each other. 
basically, Armenia has been always geographically in a very bad position. They've always been kind of conflict going around. And at that time, they were divided. So there was the Turkish side and there was the Russian side. Uh, in 1921, basically, uh, Armenia was an uh, independent country on its own and then eventually became a state and a republic of the USSR. When it became a state and a republic of the USSR, a part of the country and the land itself was separated. And Stalin basically decided at the time to separate the, the people and their land so that they can keep them vulnerable. So what he did is he took one side of Armenia and, and gave it to Azerbaijan. And he took uh, the other side of Armenia and gave it to Azerbaijan, which is the Nagorno-Karabakh area, and left Armenia in the middle, uh, kind of like, you know, in the middle of everything, uh, in, in uh, separated and vulnerable. And that's where the really the issue started, because from that point on, um, as a, a republic of the USSR, Armenia and Azerbaijan always had some sort of a conflict because the Armenians living in Azerbaijan were always mistreated or badly treated, even though they lived side by side for a long time. Now, t uh, let's get qualifications here. Uh, who are the Armenians and uh, who are their surrounding, the, the, the people that surround them? Uh, Armenians, uh, it's a... It's a a very difficult question to ask or answer just because Armenians themselves, historically, they go back thousands of years. They're, they're an old people, just like the, the Jews are, just like the Palestinians are. Uh, there are not too many people left on the world in the world that can claim they have thousands and thousands of years of history. Uh, Armenians are one of them from the old tribes. They've managed to hang on to their identity, but they have scattered all over the world, specifically from the 1915 or uh, early 1900s genocide that the Ottoman Empire uh, placed in Turkey. And while that, Armenians were scattered all over the world. And now you have a diaspora of Armenians that probably uh, accumulate more than the actual population of Armenians in Armenia. Now, there's also the Nagarno-Garapakh area, which we refer to as Artsakh, the Armenian name. And that area is predominantly Armenian, but it was always kind of considered part of the Nagarno-Garapakh, uh, sorry, part of the Azerbaijan Soviet Republic until uh, 1980, started around 1987, where they started protesting, even when it was USSR. And they started asking to be uh, released by the Azerbaijani Republic and join the Armenian Republic. And in 1989, they held a vote to basically say, we want to so be sovereign from the Azerbaijani Republic. And from that point on, it got bad, went to worse. And the Azerbaijans started holding pogroms in the rest of Azerbaijan, like in Baku and in Sumgait, uh, killing Armenians, uh, basically uh, sending them off. And that's when, in 1991, when complete independencies came from both countries and this fall of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, that territory itself became at play. So now all of a sudden, you had the Azerbaijanis from one side and the Armenians on the other side fighting over the Nagarno-Garapakh area, the Artsakh area. And that fight lasted from 92 to 94, where... I would think probably hundreds of thousands of people were either killed or hurt and wounded, and probably uh, millions of people were uh, had to you know dis be displaced from one end to the other. So there was people that were living in 
in the Nagorno-Karabakh area that were Azeris that were sent over to the east side, to Azerbaijan. And there were people living in Azerbaijan, uh, in Baku, in Sumgad, and other uh, cities. They were all sent out to live in uh, Armenia or in the Artsakh area. So after the 94 war ended, Armenia uh, would claim victory, if you want to claim victory after a war, and basically had control over those territories for a period of time, which probably was close to 30 years. Uh, there was always some kind of uh, little disruption here and there, but nothing like what the war we saw in 2020. Now, um, I, I want to go back a little bit in time because there was a big issue in the United States where I believe Turkey uh, held, well, well Turkey was pretty upset whenever uh, Congress attempt to claim there was some sort of a genocide effected by Turkey on the Armenians. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this has been a constant struggle for the Armenians all over the world. Basically, in 1915 and the turn of the century, there was a genocide committed to the Armenians that lived under the Ottoman regime. At that time, uh, Turkey had allied with uh, Germany and they were fighting the West, while the Armenians living there, uh, they were trying to either uh, survive or get through it. Meanwhile, a lot of them were going towards the East and joining the other side, which was the Russian side. And Russia was uh, obviously against them at the time, meaning uh, against Turkey. So when the genocide occurred, uh, documentation, proof, evidence shows that over uh, 1.5 million people were, were killed, persecuted in that genocide. And from that point on, um, Armenians were relocated from all over the world and the Armenian diaspora was really formed. And that diaspora goes from South America all the way to Asia. I mean, there's Armenians from all over the world from the genocide. My grandparents being, uh, at the time, orphans. Uh, my grandfather was six when the genocide happened. He was relocated in Lebanon, found himself in Lebanon in an orphanage. And there he met my grandmother, which was an orphan in Lebanon. And they uh, got together. And my parents were both born in Beirut. So my, I never actually uh, saw... Armenia or lived in Armenia physically. I was born in Canada. So this is the story of an Armenian diaspora, an Armenian that grew up outside of its land, but still grew up Armenian and sharing the Armenian culture. Now, Turkey has always denied that there was a genocide. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of the world has accepted it and has proclaimed it. And U.S. being one of the recent ones, that uh, announced that they finally uh, said it was a genocide. Biden said it, his, his administration. And at this point, Turkey uh, has always said uh, it was never a genocide. It was just war. We were fighting. And the, and the Armenians there were uh, traitors or people that were working with the Russians. And, you know, we took care of them. But, you know, when children and women are dying, it's not a war. It's, you know, it's civilians and they're being persecuted just because they're Armenians. Then it was specifically a genocide aimed towards eliminating the Armenians. And they almost did. They almost managed to eliminate them if uh, some of the countries like wait, France. Wait, uh, didn't not eliminate them, right? Because they're already all over the world, correct? No, before that, they weren't really all over the world. They were strictly in that uh, the region in Turkey 
on which which is now considered Eastern Turkey, but at that time and for a long time was Western Armenia. So when they were living in those lands, those are the lands where my like my grandparents were born on those lands. So all of them and most of Armenian grandparents that live in the diaspora, their grandparents were born in those lands. So we all came from that land and we all came from the genocide. So we're we're basically outcomes of the genocide. So we live in or grew up in North America or Europe or South America is because uh, there was a genocide and it drove us out. And that's the reason why we have a big diaspora outside. Okay, so let's go territorial a bit here. There's Azerbaijan and there's Armenia. And somewhere in between, there's this place we call, you call it Artak. I think it's called, others call it Nagorno-Karabakh, correct? Correct. Nagorno-Karabakh is the Russian name for the enclave. It's an enclave. Uh, it's the high Caucasus, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, it's the mountainous region. It's very mountainous. It's it's uh, it's spectacular. It's beautiful. And in, in those lands, uh, the Armenians probably have been living there for centuries, and uh, over 95% of the population, even when it was an Azerbaijani republic and recognized under the Azerbaijani Russian Republic, it was mostly majority population was Armenia. And it's Azerbaijan, those, uh, how do you say it, Azerbaijanis? Uh, or is that how it's said? I'm not sure. Is, uh, or yeah, Azerbaijan. I think, I mean, they refer to themselves as Azerbaijanis or Azeris, uh, either or. Are they just culturally different? Are you cousins? Are they culturally different just or, or, or what? No, we have we really don't have much in common other than the fact that we shared a land to live on. Mm-hmm. But culturally, Azerbaijanis are Muslims, while uh, all most Armenians are Christians. Um, and I would say Turkey and Azerbaijanis are, are very closely tied. Mm-hmm. Especially now with rhetoric that's come out in recent years where Erdogan, uh, the president of Turkey, has announced that they are two nations, one one people. Mm-hmm. So they basically see them see each other as the same. But uh, the the original reason why Azerbaijanis are in that area of land, I mean Azerbaijanis are are probably cousins or relatives or you know background is the tatars uh, if you look back in history the tatars are what where they came from and the tatars at the time were asked to come to support the armenian kings back when the armenians had kingdoms and they ruled those lands interesting enough they they were asked to come and support their armies to fight other armenian kings so the conflicts uh, go way back and sadly, uh, you can say sometimes that uh, back then the Ar- uh, Armenian kings that couldn't get along with each other probably uh, brought this on to themselves. And then when the Tatars moved in those lands, they just never left and they kind they of took it over. stuck around. And yeah, and they basically claimed it as theirs. Uh, and that was it. And then the Armenians also at one point were fighting the Turks for centuries until they also lost, you know, I mean, they, they have such a long history. Obviously, they have wins and losses, you know, and that's part of their historical, uh, cultural background. But the sad part is that all those centuries, uh, thousands of years gone by, and we still haven't been able to find some sort of a peaceful resolution. But there are Armenians living in Turkey, which ended up staying there even after the genocide, but most of them either converted or at least hid their Christian beliefs from the public eye or from the government. 
Man, it's sad that we still have all these these conflicts and sometimes you just wonder. Now, tell me a little bit about your, uh, well, tell me a lot a bit about your documentary, The Desire to Live. Uh, the Desire to Live, yes. Yeah. Well, it all started with my web series, with our web series. Um, when the war was happening, I wanted to go over there and document, by, but that didn't work. I ended up, uh, somebody from LA flew down there uh, to get, footage, but it was very difficult to even get close to the border. So we couldn't get into the border area. So once the war ended, I was wondering how I could uh, tell the story of what's happening. And that's when I uh, met Mariam, which is uh, a young lady that lives and was born in Stepanagert. Stepanagert is the main capital city of Artsakh. Uh, It's the most populated city. It's probably the only real big city in Artsakh area because the rest of the area is very mountainous and, you know, it's just farmers and people living off of the land. So that's that's the population we're talking about. Let me just let me ask you to do one thing for me, please, uh, because for the audience that's watching, I, I know Artsakh is the the name that uh, the, the proper name. But yeah. everybody who watches the news over here, they know sure. it as a conflict in Negorno Karabakh. So if you sure. could use them combined, let's absolutely. Up. I'll use them. I'll use the either or. For me, it's the same. It's just that the Nagorno Karabakh name is the Russian name. Put right. From, I understand. Uh, yeah. So when when uh, when I met uh, uh, Mariam and and she was working for. Uh, Artsakh TV, Nagorno Karabakh TV, and at the time uh, she was filming some stuff, and I really loved the way she was capturing the people and what they were, uh, you know, saying and how she was, uh, sh- you know, talking to them. And I and I approached her and said if she wanted to do a series to continue this project on and to see if we can reach b- a bigger audience, and she agreed. And so that's how this project started as a web series. Uh, I started with um, episode by episode, releasing it on YouTube. Every week we would release a YouTube, so four episodes a month. And that went on for months until we finished the first season, which was 15 episodes. And then I wanted to continue on. So we did a second season and we did another 12 episodes in the second season. And these are episodes of like 15 to 20 minutes long. Uh, people being interviewed in these villages, these towns. I mean, it was also informative for me as a producer which I didn't even know these little nuances in the towns and the villages that people, you know, what they went through and what happened. So as a diaspora Armenian, I was also getting informed while I was producing these episodes. And while this was going on, it came to a point where uh, the conflict was still at a standstill. I know we, the war had uh, officially ended, but the torture and the uh, and the persecution hadn't, meaning the, the Azerbaijanis now controlled a big, uh, area around Nagorno-Karabakh area and Artsakh. So basically now they've surrounded the region. The corridor, which we, we refer to it as the Lachen Corridor, is the only road in and out of the region from that connects Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh Artsakh. So basically that corridor, when the peace treaty came in, it was initiated or at least resolved with the help of the Russians and Putin. Meanwhile, Putin started the whole thing as well. So. All of this to say that they took over a big chunk of the Nagorno-Karabakh area back and whatever was left that was still the population in the main city of Stepanagert and about 120,000 people that were left there. 
Now they're surrounded, and that one area of the corridor, the latching corridor, is the only one road in and out. So you can't fly in either because air airspace is controlled by Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. So you can't fly anything in. You get shot down. So the only way is by road. And for months and months, it was open because the Russian peacekeepers kept it secure until recently, uh, last month, where it all started. And uh, protesters, in the name of protesting uh, eco eco-friendly protests. I have no idea what what they're talking about because Azerbaijan is one of the biggest polluters of the world, being a big uh, gas and oil co- right. dependent company. Uh, they were protesting the mines because our, our, Armenia has mines, or at least in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenians have access to a mine or certain mines that they still controlled, that they weren't able, they were, they didn't lose throughout the war. And they were protesting that they, they, they're basically colluding from the way they're harvesting from the mine, which is all, which is all uh, a cover up. And by the way, uh, what, what used, kind of mines are these? They're just mines that you, you, I found out after in my research that these mines are actually rich with a lot of, uh, Rear content that, that's used now for microchips. Rare, so, yeah, rare. Yeah. Rare. So nowadays, this is it. I never knew. I thought my the main reason why the war happened in 2020 was the pipeline. I thought it was the pipeline. It was based on oil and the pipeline. They wanted to run through with Armenia. And I thought that they did everything possible to make it faster. But then I found out that the pipeline was already set and it went around the Nagorno-Karabakh region into Georgia and into Turkey. So that was done. So then I was like, why? Then if the pipeline is set, yeah, maybe it's faster or shorter, but it doesn't matter. It's already in place. So what are they fighting for? Then I do more research. Then I find out that it's these mines. Now, there's mines in the Artsakh area, the Nagorno-Karabakh area, that have these minerals that are high demand. These right. are minerals that are being used now in drones. They're being used in satellites. Yeah. All of these materials being used there, and there's a lack of it, and it's, it's high in demand. Now, Armenians are are harvesting, but yet they're not manufacturing to its capacity because Armenians treat their land a little differently. They treat it as historical lands. So basically everything's done kind of in a very small way. Uh, nothing is mass produced, nothing. So that is now a big thing. And then the whole argument about uh, Aliyev uh, fighting over a corridor in Armenia to reach Nakhchevan, which is the other side of Armenia, which is also... Uh, it's an it's isolated a, area that, that has an isolated one area yeah. controlled by Azerbaijan has been con- controlled by Azerbaijan from the days of Stalin, because that's what Stalin did. Uh, they wanted to create a corridor. Uh, Armenia finally agreed that they would give them access, but that wasn't good enough. Uh, Aliyev, I guess, in his head, believes that uh, having a corridor means they control the corridor completely, meaning they cut access to the bottom half of Armenia. So they take over the whole country. And I was like, why do they want that part of the country? It's not even that populated. It's really historical for Armenians, that land. And then I find out that there's more mines in Armenia right. as well. And that's what they have their eyes on. And Turkey has their eyes on. So now it's all this. It's all about these mines. When I do more research, I find out that Azerbaijan's already sold the rights to cultivate or harvest the mines to companies like the Anglo-Saxon Asian uh, mining company, and they're uh, they're out of the out of Europe with ties to the United States. I do more research. I find out that there's an 
ex-governor of New Hampshire that's on the board. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a very high, a small percentage of people that uh, that own a big chunk of wealth in the world. So we're we're talking about the 0.1% of the world. Well, now Armenia is is being used as a as a geographic location for it, uh, and the people are are being persecuted because now this percentage of people have their eyes on these mines. Now, whatever we do, whatever peace um, treaties that we're trying to create, uh, if they don't risk get access to these things, I feel like they're not going to stop. Uh, they're going to continue. And their military is 100 times stronger than Armenia's military. Uh, for the last 15 years, Azerbaijan's been putting money in their military and backing their military, while Armenia has been putting money in their education and their infrastructure and the medical, you know, trying to make their country better for the people. While Azerbaijan, the dictator, runs the country like a dictatorship does. His family owns most of the wealth. His friends share the wealth with him. Oligarchs are kind of like in control. And basically, the people themselves are at a level of poverty that is beyond a country like that. If I understood watching a couple of your shorts, um, am I to believe that Armenia is not a very industrialized country or is that just the pieces that you showed? Uh, well, the, the area that you see in my uh, films are strictly in the Artsakh Nagorno-Karabakh area. Mm -hmm. So we're, I, my, most of the, the documentaries are all shot on location in the region of conflict. Okay. So Armenia itself, uh, Yerevan, is a beautiful city, totally modern. Uh, it's got all the bells and whistles you can imagine a modern city has, has a, a flowing tourist attraction. You know, obviously being a Christian country, they've realized that uh, there's a big uh, demand in people that believe in Christianity. So they have all these beautiful churches. So they have everything going on. Now, on is the the war, is the, has the war made it into those centers? Not yet. But when I was in Armenia in September, the day after I arrived, they attacked the border for the very first time. They hadn't attacked the border in the 2020 war. Well, well, I can't say they hadn't, but they hadn't officially attacked it and they attacked it officially. And it was like almost uh, two days of fighting where there was a few hundred Armenian soldiers that died in protecting the border. But they held on and they only lost about 20 square meters of ground to Azeris, but yet they held the border strong. Now, what happened afterwards was uh, the American embassy had informed us not to visit certain regions. So they knew that there was an imminent attack coming again. They were getting prepared to attack from both sides. And that's when uh, Senator Pelosi, House Speaker Pelosi, decided to take an unplanned trip to Armenia while I was there, uh, the day before the independence of Armenia, which is September 21st, happens to be my birthday, uh, to, to come to Armenia and to basically say, we the American government and the American people stand with Armenia and our small democracy that we have there. So basically, and the war didn't happen and they didn't attack again, but they kept them at bay. And I know that the U.S. and their people in the U.S. doing their best to not make that conflict grow. But meanwhile, there's also people in the U.S. that are in their interest to have that conflict to grow. So, now, you, so what do you ultimately what do you want 
out of your documentary? What do you want to present to the world? What do you want the response of the world to be after they've engulfed themselves into your documentary about this? Because to, to be frank, in, in America, we have short, uh, very short term spans. Uh, personally, uh, this story intrigues me specifically because of what you said about rare earths and acknowledging what our economic system has done throughout the world using various areas as pawns for the success of a few, for the enrichment of a few. I mean, ultimately, all these wars, that's what they turn out to be, uh, you know, controlling land from those who want to profit from it. Now, a lot of Americans don't see that. A lot of, far, a lot of folks don't see the, the reality that occurs in the background of why these conflicts occur. What do you want to show the American people and what reasons would you want to give them that, hey, this is a faraway land. It's a landlocked land. Here's why you should care. I think I think it's important that one we have to inform people because a lot of people just have no concept of where and what's going on. That they, even when the war was happening, it was mostly Armenians that were sharing posts. And if you had an Armenian friend, you might have come across their posts, but the media didn't cover it, so there was zero media coverage. Mm-hmm. I would probably count on my hand, on one hand, how much, how many articles were written about the war at the time when it was 45 days and it was brutal. So one is that I made this film because I figured film is at least one and documentaries is one tool that we still have as independent people Mm -hmm. to share stories and to, to tell people what's happening to inform them so that if somebody is interested in taking on more of an interest in what's going on, they can do more research because if you do research, you can find things online. Uh, two is, you know what it is? I've, I realized at the end is that uh, Armenia is a democracy after all, whether it's been a, a healthy democracy or a trying democracy for the last 30 years, all it's done is trying to create a better place to live for the people that live there. And they're doing it under the Western standards. So we have free and open elections, uh, considering the fact that the last prime minister that was in power right now went through a whole process of, a, we called it the Velvet Revolution, where uh, we weren't happy with whoever had won. and We thought that it was rigged. So the new one came in. And because of the power of the people, that we, we were able to peacefully transfer the power over to this person that's now in, in play. And he's the prime minister. We believe that as Armenians outside of, the, every, outside of Armenia, that we bring uh, this knowledge and experience that we've taken from all over the world into into this place. And if we can share the stories with the world and maybe we can create some interest, the key is now is the West. It's really the only country left, the West, the US basically. Uh, Europe, there's, there's too many ties with Aliyev and Azerbaijan. They depend on the oil. It's their only lifeline now, especially with Russia being at war with Ukraine. So the US is the only place left that has the power, that has the ability to stop anything they want or to start anything they want anywhere. And if we could use the, the power of what we have here in the diaspora as Armenians and share these stories with Americans, get Americans on board and show that, listen, you have this small little Christian country that's being persecuted again and again and again, and it's being repeated. Like history is being repeated itself. All the neighbors, they just want it to be wiped out. We dealt with a genocide already in 1915. We can basically have another one right now. Uh, Aliyev yesterday came out and opened and said, said, uh, you know what, if people from uh, Nagorno-Karabakh want to leave, we'll let them leave, basically. Other than that, 
there's not there's no other way of dealing with this issue. So his mind is made up. You know, he's going to take over that place, whether they're going to be there and he's going to kill them off or he's going to put them under the Azeri rule. It's not like their people are happy. I mean, they live in these bad you know, situations, but film is a power we have to share. And obviously film is where people can relate and they can feel human again. They can they can get those emotions out and say they can do the right thing. And, you know, that's what my mission is now you know, as a producer. I have the the series that I've been working on for two and a half years. I have this feature film. I have another feature film that released and has done the award shows called Motherland. And then uh, that I was a producer on. And I have three more that I'm working on. I mean, all at once. And, you know, I have a normal life too. I have, I have to finance these movies. I'm an independent producer. So I basically work on one side, make money, and I put it towards these films so I can tell these stories of these people that need a voice. I mean, that's really practically what it is. You know, I'm Armenian, so I, I can relate to these people, even though I've never lived there. I've never lived on those lands, but I can relate to them because historically, when you go through a genocide, uh, like the Jews have gone through in Holocaust, you never want it to be repeated again, never to anybody, nowhere. And that's where you see Armenians are very vigilant when it comes to any atrocities happening anywhere around the world to anybody. They, 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 they don't like seeing things like that happen because it's happened to them. So when you know it can happen to you, it can happen to anybody. And that's that's what I want people to understand in the West as well, is that we are privileged here. We live a privileged life and it's great and it's, and it's happy and do little. But, you know, it can turn very quickly. And uh, this whole war with Russia and Ukraine is a perfect example. Absolutely. How can folks find you to really see what you're all about and to probably help finance you? Uh, well, basically, the website that the film is on is called the desire to live dot dot com. Uh, there you can you can see what those the film has done and all the awards it's won. It's won 136 awards so far and in, in, in been officially selected in over 150 festivals. But also the web series, I decided to put the web series for free on YouTube. So anybody that types the, the desire to live on YouTube pops up. We have three seasons and the fourth season starts filming in February if we can continue filming and the people are there. My goal is to continue telling the story until we get enough people hearing us, seeing what's happening, and hopefully helping to make a difference. Now, politicians in the U.S. Uh, are there helping and supporting some of them. And then some of them, like Biden, which he came out and, and uh, you know said the genocide, the Armenian genocide was a genocide finally, and the U.S. recognized it. Meanwhile, he has a $100 million military uh, uh, basically a bill that waives that thing and it gives $100 million to Azerbaijan and, uh, for military purposes. It doesn't make sense. The, you know, they don't need money. They have, they're a super rich country, but yet the principle of giving them money for military purposes shows that they're backing them up and allows him and Aliyev to continue doing what they're doing, which practically uh, in, in reality for the 2020 war was war crimes. What We have proof of it and uh, you know, we're doing all we can, not only me, but there's a lot of smarter people than me doing all they can in the courts, in the world courts to hold them accountable. But the U.S. is the key. The U.S. is the key here. U.S. can help Armenia quite a bit in stopping more bloodshed. Peter Balawanian, producer of The Desire to Live. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for the energy that you're spending on this project. We...
Where is my screen? Here is my screen. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, let's see. Uh, I think uh, Brother Robert took some exceptions to the to what Peter had to say. He says, this is 100% propaganda, Egberto. This is shameful and very unbalanced, not to mention so clearly inaccurate. Please research people's credentials before introducing them to us as experts. Number one, I don't think neither myself nor Mr. Peter by, by law Wajin uh, went ahead and uh, introduced themselves as experts. Again, I'm no experts on the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is really, it's been, a, been, go, been going on for quite some time. I've followed it, but I'm no expert in it. Likewise, um, the fact that um, the film got a whole lot of awards I thought it, it it was worthwhile bringing it for to, to, to the group. Take it as you will. Determine, fact check it, etc. Now, what I, I, I watched a lot of the shorts that they put out there of what's going on in Armenia. Or actually, it's in uh, Kazakh. And, you know, uh, you know, these are people that are suffering. The average relative, the, the, these average people are suffering. I also know that there are, in fact, mines and rare earths and that a lot of what occurs under capitalism has an effect on this. The fact that also the United States took such a long time to determine that there was some sort of a genocide that occurred over there and knowing how the United States operate, it also gave me pause as far as maybe these are people that have been trying to get their message out for a long time. I thought he came on, and uh, you may see it as propaganda. If there is an alternate source or an alternate, uh, an opposing opinion, an opposing narrative that approaches me after I play this, and if I can give them the same sort of, uh, if they give me the same kind of gravitas that uh, Peter has so far, I would put them on as well. But I, I, you know, so I mean, if there are specific, um, if there are specific um, items he said that you think needs to be challenged, challenge it. And not only that, you you know this is an open forum, uh, Robert. You can actually write in, call in, or we can even do an interview for you to refute everything that this guy has said. I am always willing to do these kinds of things. I've done a little. Uh, again, I I didn't spend a whole lot of time doing. A massive amount of research because that's what his job is. So again, please, uh, please go ahead and consider if you have an objection to do it. John, June Litter says, Armenia in the late 1930s, my grandmother encouraged us to finish our meals, clean our plates because think of the starving Armenians. We should be grateful for what we had. Uh, I I understand about. I know you guys want to cover the shooting in in uh, Georgia. Yes, uh, the police once again murdered somebody once again. That goes against the grain. Uh, it, it's interesting. Yesterday I'm driving to KPFT, and I get a call from the people trying to re to raise money for police officers that have been gunned down. And the guy said, I know you support the officers or something like that. He told me. And I said, you know, I know there are good officers out there, but please don't call me again to ask me to support this fund for officers 
when the amount of people, when the funds that I would want to provide right now would be for all those left behind after police officers have killed so many. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that some of you saw the, the interview that I did, uh, yes, that I presented yesterday with a police officer who admits that because of what he confronts in certain areas, it creates an inherent prejudice in himself. You wonder how come that inherent prejudice doesn't occur in certain towns in Appalachia. Did you ever see the video that I have on my website where a, uh, a, per, a perpetrator breaks a bottle to turn it into a knife, a stabbing unit, confronts the cop, and never did these cops raise their, a chance to use a gun on this guy. They pursued this guy around the town for hours. You know, it wasn't the appropriate time for me to bring that up to the person that I was talking to in stages. In stages, you bring things out in stages when you're trying to get folks to see things through other eyes. All right, let's see what else we got here. Every case is like, Berto, do you see the cause of mining for renewable minerals? Everyone is chasing in the name of climate. What else can they do? If we need rare earths to build these things, that's what we need. Uh, Lee Grant says, I know the region, uh, well, first, um, uh, I think uh, Lee Grant was challenged by, uh, by, Lee Grant was challenged, no, rather, Robert Davenport was challenged by Lee Grant, who asked, what's his beef? Lee Grant says, or rather, Robert says, I know the region, know some of it, the history, I am somewhat versed in the language, Russian, Turkish, Arabic, and religions. I have family in Turkey, have visited the country several times. Okay, uh, Egberto, there's going to be a lot of chat to read out. I'm reading them out, uh, Brother Rudden. I'm reading them out. Um, Robert, are you, are you Muslim? I'm just curious. Not that it matters, but I'm just curious. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, uh, with great sadness, I recall heavily militarized police force and hired private army deployed to confront us at Standing Rock during the No DAPL movement. Yes, I can recall that. Uh, I'm going through the scan, going up the scroll. I'm going up the scroll. You're right, there's quite a bit of things. The police say that Tehran shot first, but have neither body cam footage nor other evidence to support their claim. And while one state trooper has been hospitalized, witnesses in the area describe hearing a single series of shots and speculate that the officer may have been a victim of friendly fire. You think? The group that killed Tehran, according to The Guardian, included officers from Atlanta Police, the Cobb County Police, Georgia State Patrol, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and the FBI. These guys usually are cowards. You know, something moves and they all open up in fire to just fill the room with lead. Because, you know, they have to protect themselves at all costs. Uh, continuing, let's see what else we got here. I'll put new comments in, folks, because I, I don't... Egberto, it comes to what we can do about rare earth minerals. We might want to consider asteroid mining, which will become a solution sometime in the next few decades. This might be a good one for after the show. Okay, I'll, I'll take a look at it, brother. Uh, raised as a Catholic converted to Islam. Okay. Um, 
I hope. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you one other question with regards to that because I, re, I respect my whatever religion my brothers and sisters are: Islam, Christian, agnostic. I am a humanist, as all of you guys know. But there's one thing that I, uh, that I want to put out there, and that is, I try not to judge topics that I put on from a religious perspective, but from one where, uh, from a humanist perspective, and that covers actually every religion, right? Because for me, it's all about human beings, not about uh, doctrine, not about any of that. Every case is like, Berto, you don't like something today, very apparent. What do you mean? Egberto uh, sent that video link to your FB. Thank you. I, I will enjoy it, sir. Appreciate that. Prayers to those lost in California this week. Absolutely. So that is why we need severe gun control. Anyhow, I have another video for you before we go. And this one, this one is kind of cute. As you all know, now that Roe v. Wade is path, has passed, it turned out that Republicans used to say the reason they want Roe v. Wade overturned is so that each state can independently decide uh, women's, you know, each, the, the, each state will decide women's reproductive rights. In other words, some states may decide that women have rights and some states may decide they don't have rights. In other words, it's a state issue. That's what they wanted to say, right? But in the recent times, in the recent days, in the recent weeks, what we've seen legislature after legislature is the type of nationalization of prohibiting women to have their reproductive rights altogether. So much so that it has gone to the absurd. I want you to listen to, uh, to this, including what this Republican man had to say, women relative to cows. Check this out and then we'll take it on the other side. Republicans in Congress are now calling for a nationwide abortion ban. Some even from the moment of conception. The right of every woman in every state in this country to make decisions about her own body is on the line. And I've said it before and I will say it again. How dare they? Vice President Kamala Harris voicing the outrage of women and men all across America on the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. Thousands took to the streets this weekend to voice their anger and fear over the United States Supreme Court stripping away the constitutional right to an abortion nearly seven months ago. Anti-abortion rights activists who were also marching over the weekend to celebrate forcing previously unimaginable nightmare situations on generations of women have become emboldened. They want more. They are pushing for nationwide bans on abortion and urging state legislatures to criminalize 
miscarriages and strip away exceptions for rape and the life and health of the mom. Case in point, in Arkansas, a new bill would allow women to be prosecuted for the death of an unborn child, which means that women could be investigated and prosecuted when they miscarry their pregnancies. In Kansas, GOP lawmakers are trying to allow cities to ban abortions, despite voters overwhelmingly supporting abortion rights over the summer. And in Wyoming, a new bill would get rid of exceptions in cases of incest or rape in the state's near total abortion ban and allow district attorneys and the Wyoming AG to sue abortion providers. And there's Idaho, where a court's ruling could soon force women to receive life-saving abortions via C-section. One lawmaker telling the legislature that his background in livestock makes him a women's health expert. Watch. I've milked a few cows, spent most of my time walking behind lines of cows. So if you want some ideas on repro and the uh, women's health uh, thing, I have some definite opinions. Republicans, that is who they are. We think, think about that. He has cows. I mean, the man has cows. And that is what gives him the right, right? The man has cows. Wow. I, I, I don't know if people can really understand. Yes, they can. The mentality. The mentality of these particular of this particular sect of republicans that they think it's funny well you know i worked with a lot of cows i handle the reproduction of cows all the time it's not a problem so i i can tell you something about women's reproductive rights you should be ashamed do you have a wife a daughter an, an aunt a cousin a grandmother it's not funny, but he thought it was, but he didn't only think it was funny. He actually believed that crap. I mean, the, the worst part about this is that guys like that, their biggest allies are women of their sect. How can we fight it when we have so many still abiding by either the Stockholm Syndrome or a type of sur uh, survivalist syndrome by demeaning one's self? When I saw that, I couldn't believe it. I kept on rewinding, 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 rewinding. Did he really say that? Did he really say that? And the answer is yes. And then the next question was, is he different from other Republicans who are trying to push this uh, uh, pro, what would I call it? Pro tell a woman what she can do with her body? My God. A message to women from a guy, from a man. There are more of you in this country 
than me, than men. Your purpose in this country should be subservient to no one. To no one. And above and beyond, no man has the right. I would never attempt to tell you what you can do with your body or who you must have dependent on your body. Because by God, I don't want you or anyone else telling me what I can do with my own. Um, I can't tell you how upsetting this was for me and should be, in my humble opinion, to every human being of, of, of the, with, a thought, with, with a thinking ability. But anyhow, that's what we have as the modus operandi of the current Republican Party. All right, folks, it is 56 time for me to go ahead and say, please support our program. Uh, it's very easy to do. And what I'm going to do today is just give you one link. And I promise it's just one link today. All the support links that we have can be found, or most of the support links that we have can be found in politicsdoneright.com slash support. Please click on that link and provide uh, whatever support you can based on the options we have in that link. I want to close out. I, I was going to talk a little bit about Bernie's attack on Big Pharma with the article that he wrote for Fox News, but I'll, I have the link inside of the blog for the post that will be going up in a little bit. So I'm not going to go through that. But what I do want to go through is um, asking you, you know, some people ask, you know, oh, you, you, you're, you're, you keep doing this. Is it going to be ever possible for us to change? Is it going to be ever possible for us to defeat the mainstream uh, media's characterization of our political system, which makes those of us who want real change uh, just spinning our wheels? And it is not the case. That is what they want us to believe. They want us to believe that we can't make a difference. They want us to believe that our only option is to abide. Our only option is to coalesce to what they're offering. The thing about it is uh, the people that they're using to assist them are actually in the same boat with us all. And they are also ruining them. So all my conservatives in this forum right now, they are being harmed just as much as we are the progressives in this forum. We are in the same boat together. It is a psychological pretzel to have those supporting conservative and neoliberal ideology it is psycholo it's a psychological pretzel to have the two of us progressives or, or the ones who call ourselves progressives and the ones who call themselves conservatives. It is a myth to believe that we want different things, except for certain things that are religious in nature. 
that really should be kept to one's self, to one's what one wants to do. And they have invested a lot. The war on Christmas, and we rile you up. They want to give, they want to give trans all the power. They are giving you CRT every single day. Or every single week, every single month, there is something else to scare conservatives. Because you only have to scare one side. You invest in dummifying one side. You invest in scaring one side. You invest in having one side believe that the other side has horns. And you don't have to worry about screwing them all anymore. Because they'll fight among each other. And that is why I don't ever intend to fight my conservative brothers and sisters. They're my brothers and sisters. And I'll be in the foxhole with them as well. You know, when I get these emails that say, um, you know, why bother? I tell them we must bother. If we really, really care, we must bother. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.